Indeed, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. And we, of course, uh, want the Spirit of God to descend upon us uh, as his word is preached and to give us understanding. And I'm going to ask if you please remain standing out of honor uh, for God's word. And if you have your Bibles, to take your Bibles and turn to Mark, Mark's gospel, the 13th chapter. Mark chapter 13. I think you know after last week that what this is, this is what is called the Olivet Discourse. And it is called that because Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. He has just told his disciples, uh, you know, you see that temple there, the Jewish temple? Not one stone is going to be left upon another. This thing is going to be destroyed. And, of course, his disciples uh, ask him, well, when is this going to happen? Uh, you know, what are the signs before uh, these things take place? Well, Jesus answers that in the text that is before us. I'm going to read, for the scripture reading, I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. The message, however, is going to go all the way to verse 23, uh, which means we're not going to finish this all of it discourse today. Uh, we'll finish it next week. But the scripture reading for today is just verses 5 through 9, where God's word says this. And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we certainly are grateful to have your word before us, grateful to sit under the preaching of your word. Lord, we ask that Indeed, your spirit would descend upon us. We ask, Lord, that you would give us understanding. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would bless uh, these words. And Lord, uh, certainly if what I say is incorrect to your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would make that known to us. And yet, Lord, if what I say indeed is true, if what I say is uh, in accord to your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would convict us of these great truths, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You may please be seated. And I think I have told you before, when I was a, a, a freshman in college, and uh, this is up in the Bay Area at a college not uh, known for its uh, uh, faithfulness to the Word of God by any means, uh, I had a, uh, a, a, an English class uh, with a professor who, of course, was, uh, was an atheist. And uh, one of the things that we were required to read was this essay, a famous essay, Why I Am Not a Christian, by the mathematician and, and philosopher Bertrand Russell. And I had uh, never heard of Bertrand Russell before. I'm just a freshman in college. I didn't know who he, he was. Uh, but I have since grown to have a certain amount of respect uh, for Bertrand Russell and for his incredible uh, intellect. 
he was, of course, one of the most influential and, and outspoken uh, philosophers of the 20th century. Uh, he was born in England in 1872. Uh, uh, he continued to write and, and to lecture both in Europe and here in the United States all the way until just before his death, just a couple years before his death, which was in 1970. And therefore, he was still teaching, still writing, uh, lecturing and so forth when he was in his 90s. His parents were free thinkers, which is the way of saying they were atheists. And uh, they were close friends with the philosopher John Stuart Mill, if you know who he is. Famous philosopher, also a atheist. Well, in that, in that essay, Why I Am Not a Christian, Russell attacks the teaching of Christ. And he says, and he's referring to the very text that is before us today. Referring to, to this text, he says that Jesus taught that the second coming would occur in clouds of glory before the death of the people who were living at that time. And therefore, he said, that indicates two, at least two major problems with Jesus Christ. He said, first, Jesus was obviously ignorant. He just didn't know. He was wrong. He thought this was going to happen, but it didn't happen, so therefore he is wrong. Second, Jesus was therefore a false teacher. And neither one of those is compatible with the idea that you Christians say that Jesus Christ is God on earth. Well, I'm going to say to you that he is right. And he is wrong. He's right when he understands that Jesus was asked a time frame question in verse 4. When? When is this going to happen? And he's right that in verse 30, uh, Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And he's right to understand that Jesus didn't mean when he said this generation, he didn't mean race of people, that he didn't mean that the generation that sees these things some 2,000 years and counting from now, the generation that sees these things, that's not what he's referring to at all. If he was referring to some future generation, he would have said that generation, not this generation. This is the near demonstrative. And he understood that. And he's right that Jesus clearly said all these things will take place within the time of one generation, which again, said it last week, is 40 years. And in this regard, he is in agreement with many outstanding Bible-believing theologians, like Keith Matheson. Keith Matheson, who wrote this, says, It seems more than clear from the text of Matthew 24, and in our case, Mark 13, that Jesus fully expected everything he predicted in verses 5 through 29 here to occur within approximately 40 years. The context is so plain that it has led many liberal scholars to conclude that Jesus was mistaken. If the events Jesus prophesied in verses 5 through 29 did not occur in the first century, then the liberals were right. Either Jesus was mistaken or Matthew was mistaken about what Jesus said. 
but neither of these alternatives is acceptable. Still quoting, there is a third option. Jesus was absolutely right in verse 30. All that he predicted in this passage did occur within 40 years. And so Bertrand Russell was right. Jesus did indeed say all these things would happen within 40 years. But where he is wrong is that in his zeal, in, in, his, in his hatred, his zeal to try to disprove the deity of Christ, he ended up missing what many consider the greatest prophecy in all of Scripture. And at the same time, he missed one of the greatest proofs for the deity of Christ. And where he errs is the same place so many err today when they think that what Christ is speaking about here is his second coming at the end of history, when instead what you will see is that Christ is talking about his coming upon Jerusalem, upon the Jewish nation in judgment, not his second coming. And why is he coming upon them in judgment? We said it last week. Remember, it's Luke chapter 19. Verse 41 and following, Jesus said this, or God's word says this. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The Jews are waiting for their Messiah, looking and looking and looking to the Messiah. And here's the Messiah. Jesus Christ comes. And what do they do? Not only do they reject him, they kill him. And this is judgment for that. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Men and women, what I want you to see today is not just perhaps the greatest prophecy in Scripture and proof of Christ's deity. But I want you to see how that should apply to your life today. That what that should mean for you in the 21st century. Jesus says in verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But what things? What thing, what's all these things? Well, I'm going to say to you that Jesus mentions seven things that will take place within 40 years from the time that he says it. Three of them we're going to see today. The rest we're going to see next week. And the first one is what I'm going to just simply call signs of tribulation. Uh, we had, we've just read it, but look again at verses 5 through 9. Here are these signs of tribulation. Verse 5, and Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. 
For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they do, will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Some of you will remember back to 1980. Back in 1980, do you remember Mount St. Helens? When Mount St. Helens, this volcano in Washington, first there was all the talk, this thing is getting active. There's this volcano in Washington and it's getting active and it looks like it's going to blow. And then they were kind of on, on you know, this kind of countdown to is Mount St. Helens really going to erupt? And, and certainly it did in, in 1980. And I wonder how many of you remember just the, uh, what that meant uh, you know, for all the Christians. Because remember, we had been told that Christ is going to return in 1988, that the rapture is going to be 1981, that there's going to be all these signs, earthquakes, and so forth that's going to happen before it. And here's this volcano that is erupting in, in Washington. Uh, even in, in, I don't know about down here, in Northern California, the ash from that volcano in Washington we had ash on our windshields and stuff uh, down here. It was a huge event. Then you add to that that there was little earthquakes and stuff, you know, all around California, all around the, the world. And people were convinced, oh, this is it. We're at the, the end time. Rapture is supposed to happen in 81. Boy, any day now. Well, that is what is called, I've said it to you before, it's what's called the this is that fallacy where every generation does it. This thing that we are seeing, it is the fulfillment of that that we have here in Scripture. And we had people, if you remember in the 80s, we had people like uh, Jim Jones from San Francisco, People's Temple in San Francisco, of course, where else, uh, saying that, that he was, was Christ and so forth and, and, uh, and many others. But you need to realize that in the 40 years after Christ's death, there were many who were false Christs. In fact, we saw that a few months ago in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 18. Well, what about wars and rumors of wars? Oh, I mean, we say today, boy, look at all the wars. You got a war going on in Ukraine. You got a war going on in the Middle East. It looks like China is going to soon invade Taiwan and all that. Look at all the wars. Boy, the time is, is near. Isn't that a sign of the, the end? No. Remember, between A.D. 14 and 68... There were wars in Germany, Africa, Thrace, Gaul, Britain, Armenia, and, and elsewhere. Well, what about famines? He mentions famines uh, here. Uh, this is a, a sign, uh, you know, uh, a sign that these things are going to be fulfilled. Uh, what about famines? Well, many famines uh, occurred between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70. In fact, Acts 11 Verse 27 says, Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. 
What about earthquakes? We, of course, are due for another rather big earthquake. In fact, we just had one, I think, last Friday. I heard it. I sure didn't feel it, but I heard that we had a little one. And, of course, every time they happen, people are saying, oh, it's, uh, it's a sign. We're, we're almost at the end. But people remember, in that 40-year period, between AD 30 and AD 70, there were earthquakes in Crete, Smyrna, Miletus, Samos, Laodicea, Heropolis, Colossae, Campania, Rome, Judea, and Pompeii. Well, what about persecution? I mean, look what's going on in Pakistan, look what's going on in Turkey, and elsewhere. But you all know the church lived through tremendous tribulation and persecution between AD 30 and AD 70. Peter and John were jailed. Acts chapter 4, verse 3. They were flogged. Chapter 5, verse 40. Stephen was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Both Jews and Romans ruthlessly persecuted Christians in that time frame. And so the first thing Christ refers to are tribulation signs, false Christs, earthquakes, famines, persecution, and so forth. But men and women, all those things happened in the years from Christ's crucifixion until 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Second, Jesus says the gospel must be preached to the whole world. Look at verse 10. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Matthew 24, verse 14, this is Matthew's version of the Olivet Discourse, says this. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And you're thinking, Wade, uh, are you telling us that the gospel was preached uh, to the whole world before 70 AD? Yes, I am. Actually, I'm not the one who says it. It's the Apostle Paul who says it. It's Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. Paul refers to, quote, the hope of the gospel, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, he refers to the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, that's you Colossians, as in all the world. People in scripture, world is used to refer to the whole known world. Or the Roman Empire, not the whole planet. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, verse 18, Paul talks about Israel hearing the gospel. And he says, indeed they have heard. And then quoting Deuteronomy 32, he writes, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Does end of the world refer to South America? No, 
refers to the known world, to the Roman Empire. Acts chapter 2 verse 5 says this, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Well, that's referring to the day of Pentecost. But people, are we to believe that there were devout men from North America that were there? Devout men from Peru that, that were there? Of course not. It's the Roman Empire. It's the known world. That's what it's referring to. And therefore, people, for verse 10 to be fulfilled, the gospel merely had to be preached in the Roman Empire, not the whole planet, the Roman Empire. And Paul tells us that it was. Well, what have we seen? Well, earthquakes, famines, and all that. All those things took place prior to 70 AD. The gospel was preached to the whole world prior to 70 AD. And now, third, we have the famous abomination of desolation. Look at verse 14. Jump ahead to verse 14. And when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Well, what is that? What is the abomination of desolation? Oh, you've been hearing it for decades, haven't you? Oh, the abomination of desolation, boy, that's simple. That is during the future tribulational period, halfway through, uh, the, the Antichrist is going to put a statue or some image of himself in the Holy of Holies and demand to be worshipped as God. That's the abomination of desolation. We've been hearing that for decades. They get that mostly from Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 we're going to look at in, in two weeks. But for now we need to ask, okay, if it's not that, and it's not, if it's not that, then, then what is it? Well, I was telling some friends last Sunday at the, uh, at the, the potluck, if you go to Rome, and I recommend all of you go to Rome, it's my favorite city. If you go to Rome, I took Gina there on our honeymoon. And I showed her this. You go to the Colosseum in Rome, and then, then you, you, from the Colosseum, you go toward the, the uh, Forum, which is right next to it. You go into the Forum, and you'll see this giant uh, victory arch, and it's called the Arch of Titus. Titus is the one who, who led the Roman army to destroy uh, Jerusalem. And you go into that arch, and you look to your left, and you'll see a relief uh, uh, there on that arch, and it's, it's of the Roman soldiers carrying out of the Holy of Holies the, the furniture, the candlestick, and so forth. That's the abomination uh, of desolation. Remember, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and all, uh, only once a year and only after a certain uh, you know, washing and cleansing was he able to go into the Holy of Holies. And here's Gentiles in the Holy of Holies, not just in it, but, but uh, taking out the furniture and everything. Luke chapter 21, verse 20 says this, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. 
When was Jerusalem surrounded by armies? 70 AD. Men and women, the abomination of desolation happened 2,000 years ago. It's not in our future, it's in our past. But read on. What does the Lord tell them to do? Look at the last part of verse 14 and then following. Last part of verse 14 says, And those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. The one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. People, this is the tribulation. And this tribulation is clearly in 70 AD. And clearly it is a tribulation for Israel. But I want you to notice something that Matthew records but mark doesn't in matthew's version of this olivet discourse jesus says in matthew 24 and it's verse 20 says but pray that your flight will not be in the winter just like mark says or on the sabbath pray that it won't be on the sabbath remember matthew is writing to jews pray that it won't be on the sabbath why I mean, if, if, if we're talking about some worldwide great tribulation at the end of, uh, of history, why do we care whether it happens on the Sabbath or not? I mean, what difference would that make? None at all. If the great tribulation is in the 21st century, then that just wouldn't matter at all. But if this tribulation that he's referring to is Jerusalem in the first century, and it's the destruction of the temple, then it makes sense. Because what happens on the Sabbath in the first century? Well, uh, Jews from all the surrounding areas are coming in to Jerusalem. They're coming to the temple to worship. But Christ has just said, flee. Get out of Dodge. Don't, don't even go back and get your coat. and get, get out of there. And if it happens on the Sabbath, then more people are coming into Jerusalem. But Christ says, get out, leave. Why? Well, you just saw it. It's verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Well, now wait a minute. Are we saying the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was worse than the Holocaust? Worse than World War II where 30 million 
People died, most of them, the majority of them civilians. Is it worse than the Black Plague that hit Europe? Oh, maybe, maybe not. But it doesn't matter. Remember what I said last week? The Bible uses all kinds of different genre of language. Verse 19 is hyperbole. It's not to be taken in a wooden literal way. It's just an expression. Now, how do I know? Because in Exodus chapter 11, when God is going to bring the final plague upon Egypt, we are told this. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. And then chapter 11 verse 6 says, And there shall be a great cry in the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. Same thing. Exact same phrase. Well, people, was the death of the firstborn in Egypt worse than the flood? I mean, only eight people survived the flood. Every single person on earth died except eight. No, it wasn't worse than that. This is just hyperbole. Uh, by the way, Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 9, uses similar language. Ezekiel 5 says this, Because of your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. People, this is simply a term that refers to a very terrible judgment. And Hank Hanegraaff got it right. Hank Hanegraaff, remember him, the, the, the Bible answer man? Uh, you know, he was here for a, a, a funeral that I did years ago, and uh, many years ago, and, and I had the opportunity at the luncheon afterwards to talk to him, and he and I were in agreement uh, on this Olivet Discourse. And he later, or, or not later, before we met, he wrote this. He says, well, hyperbole is commonly used in our culture. It is virtually ubiquitous in the Bible. This is particularly true of prophetic passages. In prophesying Jerusalem's destruction, Jesus says, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never will be again. In doing so, he was not literally predicting that the destruction of Jerusalem would be more cataclysmic than the catastrophe caused by Noah's flood. Rather, he was using apocalyptic hyperbole to underscore the distress and devastation that would be experienced when Jerusalem and its temple were judged. Three things we have seen so far. First, signs of the tribulation, or signs of tribulation. Earthquakes, famines, wars, and so forth. All those things happened before 70 AD. The gospel was indeed preached to the whole world before 70 AD. Third, the abomination of desolation was the Roman army, the Gentiles, surrounding Jerusalem and entering the temple. And now some of you, perhaps, maybe all of you, are thinking, okay, so what? Okay, you, you, you've made your point, who cares? Uh, why does this e even matter? Uh, uh, why make such a big deal? 
that Mark 13 is referring to an historic event that happened in 70 AD, the destruction of the Jewish temple. Why should I care about that? People, you should care because of where we began the message today. Jesus said all these things would take place within one generation, within 40 years. And he said that just before his crucifixion, which was in 33 AD. And it all happened by 70 AD. He was right. Which is why R.C. Sproul says this, Christ's words in verse 30 are what he considers, quote, the most astonishing prophecy and prediction ever uttered by a human being in all of history. Men and women, do you remember how we began today's message? I referred to the famous philosopher, Bertrand Russell. And I want to end today's message with a final point. And I'm going to call this final point the tragedy of a famous philosopher. Because even with his tremendous intellect, and he was brilliant, even with his tremendous intellect, he missed it. In fact, in his essay that I referred to, Why I'm Not a Christian, he also accuses Jesus of using fear tactics. How bad is this? Jesus uses fear tactics to force people into following him. And what fear tactics is he referring to? Well, Jesus talked and he warned of hell and judgment. And so Bertrand Russell says, quote, I really do not think that a person with a proper degree of kindness in his nature would have put fears and terrors of that sort into the world. And once again, I will say he's absolutely right. If there is no hell, he's right. If there is no judgment, he's right. But do you see the problem with that statement? Uh, and a brilliant guy like this, I can't believe he made such an elementary mistake. It assumes those things don't exist, hell and judgment. In other words, he is begging the question. But if there is judgment, which, by the way, is the very thing that we see here in Mark 13, is God's judgment upon the Jews for their unbelief. If there is judgment and if there is hell, well, then what Christ does when he warns us about it is actually a compassionate and gracious thing, isn't it? 1967. Two and a half years before his death, Bertrand Russell wrote this. Three passions, simple but overwhelmingly strong, have governed my life. The longing for love, the search for knowledge, and unbearable pity for the suffering of mankind. These passions like great winds have blown me hither and thither in a wayward course over a great ocean of anguish, anguish, reaching to the very verge of despair. Men and women, do you see the tragedy? 
Do you see how sad that is? Because where do we find love? Where do we find real love? In God, who is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 5, 6 For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Bertrand Russell longed for love. But real love is found in Jesus Christ. He longed for knowledge. But what does scripture tells us? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Paul criticized the Jews because they had a zeal for God, but he said, but not in accordance with knowledge. True knowledge is found in scripture and in Jesus Christ. And Russell had pity for those who suffer. Yet it is Christ who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He missed it. Brilliant man. He missed it. And so let's conclude with something that R.C. Sproul said about this text. He said, in light of the tremendous precision and fulfillment of these predictions, you would think that this would be all that it would take to convince any rational person that Jesus spoke the truth in every prophetic utterance he made, including those statements about him being the Redeemer and the Son of God, so that there'd be no intellectual excuse for rejecting the truth claims of Jesus and the Word of God. You would think so. Bertrand Russell, a brilliant man, and yet he missed it. And my appeal to you is don't you miss it too. See Christ's deity in this text. See who Christ is here and flee to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how grateful we are for this text that is before us and how grateful we are for the Lord in whom we see here, God in the flesh. Lord, what an amazing prophecy that it could only come from you. Lord, we pray that indeed we won't be like Bertrand Russell and so many others that miss it, that miss the, the glory and the brilliance of this passage. Lord, we pray that indeed uh, we would be those who hold to this, who flee to Christ. We thank and we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.